so I would say I am somewhat of a feminist activist. Um, one of my first protests was in, I think, 2008, uh, which was the Delhi Queer Pride. Mm -hmm. And um, I just went for it. I do not even know at this moment why I went there. I think uh, it was the first year or the early years of when homosexuality was first decriminalized uh, in India, although the decision was later rolled back. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it was like an early day of celebration, um, an early year of celebration about it. And I just went there and it was absolutely exhilarating. Um, even though I, as I said, I watched it from the margins. I didn't, I was 18. I didn't know anything about anything. But just being a part of this huge group who came together for the rights of others or their own rights, it was absolutely affirming and um, it inculcated a sort of hope in me. And I think from then on, um, I started reading extensively about feminism. I think that was also the turning point when I started calling myself a feminist. All statements in this podcast are to be understood as statements at the time of recording. Science and scientific knowledge are situational and change over time. We stand behind respectful language use that is inclusive of all people. Contact us for any feedback or should you feel triggered by anything said. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Anthropolitical. Was forscht eigentlich? Uh, my name is Olivia, or Liv, I go by the pronouns she, and I'm in my last semester of anthropology as a major at ISEC. Um, today I'm here with Pariti, who's answering a few of my questions. Welcome. Uh, thank you, Olivia. Uh, my name is Pariti Gupta. I am a postdoctoral uh, fellow at ISEC. I joined last semester um, uh, with EXIS. Uh, which is a funding scheme that allows scholars from other countries to come to Switzerland and conduct their research here. Um, so yeah, that's me. All right, thank you. Um, welcome, I'm really happy to talk to you today. Um, we'll quickly talk a bit about your background, uh, mm -hmm. what you did in your undergrad and afterwards, um, and then about your current research, your research fields, and a few other um, questions here and there. So maybe we can start off with um, your background, uh, where did you do your undergrad or what did you do before that? Where do you come from? What did you do outside of uni? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so I am originally from Delhi in India, which is the capital of India. Um, I did my undergrads from Delhi University, which is a public institution. Um, and I studied uh, human development um, and childhood education. And after that, um, I decided to go to a more open, um, academic um, discipline, which was sociology. Mm -hmm. That's what I did in my master's at Jawaharlal Nehru University, which is another public university uh, located in Delhi. And I've sort of stayed in that university for about a decade doing my master's in arts and sociology, and then my master's in philosophy in women's studies, mm -hmm. and finally a PhD in gender studies. Mm -hmm. um, for my PhD, I work with feminist movements within the city of Delhi. And the idea was to um, not look at it in the way of history, but approach it more anthropologically and figure out uh, what is the protest culture of a feminist movement, how does it function, and especially how does it function in space. And um, a lot of um, study into politics within the feminist movements have already been done extensively. It's been mapped by scholars, not just from India, but from outside India. So you're always thinking, how do we contribute something new or something different? My plan was to just offer a different perspective or a different way of looking at things. And in the course of my study, I developed um, a new method called visual cartography, mm -hmm. where I ask the activists to build maps for me and explain to me how they imagine the space. So you kind of get the perspective of the activists on the protest space. And the idea is not to get the true picture, not to get an actual to the T right map. The mm -hmm. idea is to get how they think of the space around them. And from that, I draw the analysis of how a space is structured and what does it reveal about 
how feminist protest happens and how does feminist subjectivity within the protest develops. So that's sort of in brief what I did. Mm -hmm. Um, you hinted your methodology, right? The visual yeah. cartology. Yeah. Is, is that already, was that a method that was already you? Did you borrow some inter inspiration from there? or? Yes, a bit from human geography. Um, so they already have social mapping. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of development studies also use it for community mapping. Yeah. But it's never been used um, for social movements. Mm -hmm. So, and also not used in the way I'm using it mm -hmm. and for the purposes I'm using it, of course, because of because I'm transposing it on a different field altogether. Uh, so yeah, it's not been done, and that's why it'd be interesting to sort of extend that study, and I, that's why I haven't let it go after my doctoral work, because yeah. it's just so new. Mm -hmm. I want to push it as, and see how far it can go. Yeah. yeah. Cool. If you talk about spaces, um, I assume you also mean virtual spaces, or is it more like physical spaces? Uh, I looked at primarily physical mm -hmm. spaces, uh, but the last chapter of my dissertation did focus on virtual spaces because they've become so ubiquitous. And also, like, mm, research is always evolving, right? So many things you do in your research. More than you entering the research space, the research sort of comes to you. Mm -hmm. And in my final semester of... In the final year of my degree, the pandemic arrived. Mm. And it was impossible then to ignore the virtual spaces. It was also the time a lot of virtual movements were happening, especially um, the Me Too movement mm -hmm. was at its peak during the time when I was completing my doctoral degree. And it was impossible not to like look at it and not to immerse myself into it. Yeah. So I did look at it, but um, I wouldn't say I looked at it in depth. But I have done research projects after my PhD mm -hmm. that focused primarily on the virtual ecosystem of a movement. Mm -hmm. So like social media? Social media. Mm -hmm. Um, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, yeah. and even messaging apps like Telegram, WhatsApp, how do they function and configure a social movement have been important parts of my study. Mm -hmm. All right, interesting. How cool. And your um, current fieldwork is also going towards that direction? Uh, the current fieldwork is sort of um, a mix of everything. Uh, because I do want to explore this methodology, uh, the method that I developed in my doctoral work, which is the visual cartography, because the idea of the visual is very important to me. Uh, because in anthropology, we are used to these uh, methods of the interview or the participant observation. A lot of it relies on verbal cues. And what a visual cartography offers is a non-verbal cue of expression. And I feel um, these sort of, um, um, they have a lot of hidden layers that we often miss in words, or often when you're doing an interview, in an, an interview, um, people think in a structured way. They answer the the way they answer, and a lot of it is on the conscious level. Mm -hmm. What a visual reveals is things you didn't even know existed. Yeah. So once you have a visual in front of you, you kind of go back to your own thoughts, and that's what happened in my study. That when people drew things. They were like, and you ask them, oh, why would you draw this? And how do you think of this? I believe a lot more came out and it was um, much more informative, mm -hmm. um, at least about the protest space in Delhi. And what I want to do now is apply this study to other, pla other places and other movements in the world and not just limited to feminist movements, but uh, one of my current projects for is for the city of Zurich mm -hmm. um, and how feminist subjectivities work here vis-a-vis -vis space within the city because it is more or less a liberal space it's mm -hmm. the first world quote-unquote um you have the feminist strike here mm -hmm. there is the strike house which is um a dedicated feminist space physical space that's been constructed by the movement through the movement and is operated vis-a-vis -vis, is operated through the movement and it's a unique space so right now what i'm trying to do is formulate a project that studies it and explores it, and how do not just feminists, but do those who call them anti-feminists relate to the space, because it's like more or less a permanent structure within the city now. Mm -hmm. So how do they feel about its existence? Yeah. And how do they maneuver around it? Mm -hmm. So that's the current project, but um, the long-term idea is to build innovative ways to study social movements altogether mm -hmm. and provide people more familiarity with the social movement and make it less obscure of a political phenomena so that 
um, new activists, people who have an interest on it but are scared to participate or have been told that it's the wrong thing to do or uh, it's too dangerous for them, they get a bit more familiarized with these spaces and they find an ease of access because um, it comes from my personal experience as well um, because I was not trained as an activist. I was not trained um, within the political culture of active on-street participation. But I was a feminist and how do you make peace with that? How do you be a feminist on paper but not on the road? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a struggle. And which is why I, which is what sort of motivated my doctoral research to sort of unobscure that space for myself. Mm-hmm. Right. And I want to do that for other young feminists, and I want them to give, I, I want to give them ways that they can access the sa- space safely and with much more information from the activists themselves. Mm-hmm. So that's the broader political philosophy behind it. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. So I assume the the language you choose to write about this is also very, um, how do you say, open and um, accessible, right? So yes, that's the aim. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's a limitation of academia as well that we often have to write in jargons. Um, it's something that I would like to ameliorate as a condition in academia, but especially in my work. The question of use, the use of jargon mm-hmm. right, uh, is huge because your mind is trained to write in jargons. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's a struggle now for me to not think academically while writing. Yeah. Because... Honestly, like if you write in jargons, your work is useless. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely useless mm-hmm. for yourself because five years down the line, you will not understand what you wrote. Mm-hmm. And you cannot give it back to your informant. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And who are you? And that's also the question, right? Uh, who are you studying for? Who are you doing this research for? Mm-hmm. Um, why anthropology? Or why anything? Why, why academia at all? Why do anything we do? Why come to class as master students? Mm-hmm. Um, why come to class? As uh, why do research as a PhD? Why give four years, five years of your life to something at all? Because mm-hmm. uh, honestly, it's not the most well-paid job. <laughs> yeah. So why do this, and why not follow at least in India the traditional path of becoming an engineer or a, a doctor, mm-hmm. like the doctor who can save lives surgically? Why not become those rather than becoming doctors who can write huge papers? Mm-hmm. Um, why do this to ourselves? Why do this to our mental health? If it is going to mean nothing in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's sort of also selfish in that way, right? To write something that makes a difference, mm-hmm. at least. Again, I'm not saying the academic is all powerful and we make a lot of difference, but at least there should be an attempt to, and that's why we cannot write in jargons. We cannot use words like discourse, hermeneutics, epistemology, mm-hmm. these words that we throw around. Mm. Um, and assume that everyone knows. Yeah. Uh, break it down. I mean, what's the harm mm-hmm. in just breaking it down? Yeah. Um, I think it's also like a lot of it is also being egotistical and saying, taking some pride in being part of this elite crowd who's mm. gotten this opportunity mm. to study something for four years. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, we're we're on the margins in the broad society, but we're also the elite. Mm-hmm. The fact that we can get university education, that we can sit in these well-lit halls mm-hmm. and just work. So um, it, we should also acknowledge that privilege and try to give something back. Unfortunately, a lot of my thesis, I believe, um, is jargon-heavy mm-hmm. as much as I've tried to make it more accessible. But right now, what I'm doing is also working on a book manuscript uh, from the doctoral work. And um, I hope that I can create it in a much more lucid and accessible way so that it's not just about what is uh, what the study does for the field of anthropology but it responds to my broader political philosophy of making it um, more accessible to activists and feminists around the world and of all ages Mm -hmm. of and of for academic uh, for feminists who are not academicians yeah so they can also access it however (laughs) if it doesn't work out within the academic publishing scene um, there are other forms of uh, feminist publishing that have been historically made available to us, like mm-hmm. Zines. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also work with Zines um, as part of my studies, so I'd be open to those forms of publishing as well. Okay. Can you maybe add a sentence or two about these, just for the people that don't 
um, really know uh, about the science. Mm-hmm. Um, a zine is a self-published. Think of it as a scrapbook, mm-hmm. um, and it comes on from um, 70s feminist cultures, uh, where a lot of scrapbooking and uh, do-it-yourself culture uh, was being propagated by feminists uh, because of the absolute lack of publishing opportunities for women and for feminist politics. So what women decided was to create their own means and taking the means of production in their own hands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and then they distributed it around. And right now with the digital media, it's become much, much easier to sort of create your own scrapbooks and distribute it open access freely online. Yeah. So uh, that's definitely a form of publishing I would be keen on mm-hmm. if other forms do not work out. Yeah. Uh, especially like uh, not in the long form, but maybe short form where it's sort of like a blueprint or like a how to do, like a three page or four page uh, thing on how do you participate in the protest. Mm-hmm. What are the things you have to keep in mind? Because I remember when I started going to protests, I didn't know anything. And it's, you continuously felt like an outsider. Yeah. Like you're always watching in from the margins. And I sort of felt like it even in my doctoral study because yeah, I was participating but not really understanding it. And that's why writing was such an important phenomena for me. Mm-hmm. Because as a person, I understand better by writing. Um, but it might not be true for others. But yeah, that's how I function. But it always felt like I was looking in from the, for, um, from the margins. And then slowly when you start to understand, oh, this is what I need to do. I need to wear better shoes, for instance, is mm-hmm. a simple thing. I need to carry a bottle of water and continuously hydrate myself. Um, if there are antagonists, if there is police presence and chances of police brutality, what are the most, what, as a young, as a new feminist or as somewhat ambivalent participant, this is where, these, these are the safe spots I can stand in and like mm-hmm. participate by. So these are just some examples of what um, design can possibly look like. These are just some of the ideas that I have currently. Yeah. 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 Very interesting. Does that mean you've been part of the um, recent process in Zurich as well? You, you told me you've been here for like half a year, right? Uh, I came in um, the end of August, so mm-hmm. um, not really because the feminist strike had already happened. Yeah. Uh, but I hope I can look at it closely this year mm-hmm. um, yeah. and understand, especially because not just like because of my research project but I'm also interested in it because I'm always um, interested in how different feminist cultures work similarly and differently around the world. Mm -hmm. At least in my study I found that um, we share a lot of visual imageries um, like the fist that Mm -hmm. that was also I think the part of the stick part of some of the stickers distributed at the feminist strike. Now that fist is such a powerful symbol in all social movements where does it come from? What is its trajectory? How has it mm-hmm. transferred transnationally? Is very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. So stuff like that is just uh, something that um, piques my interest. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so it'd be interesting to look at these spaces. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, at what stage of your fieldwork are you at now? Have you um, gained access yet? Have you talked to people? I've talked. Uh, I've sort of just started uh, snowballing right now. Mm-hmm. So I'm just getting in touch with people. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm integrated at all right now, mm-hmm. um, but I've just sort of met people and familiarizing myself with the context of Zurich itself mm-hmm. and familiarizing myself with um, how Swiss feminist movement and Swiss women's movement have been historically. Mm-hmm. So right now I'm at a very early stage of conceptualizing this because um, right alongside it, I'm also working on my book project, which is based primarily in social movements. Mm-hmm in India and the aim of that book project is to just introduce the perspective um, of visual using visuals as a mechanism of study and show people that these are the results you can get and also like this is how you can play with a mechanic like a process like um, anthropology doesn't need to the study of anthropology or um, how we do anthropology doesn't need to have a pre-existing structure that we get from the books we can be very interdisciplinary. That's the advantage. We can be very interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. And then we can explore mechanisms and they still work. Mm-hmm. And they can give us tangible, empirical results mm-hmm. uh, that make a difference. Uh, so that's sort of the aim of the book. Okay. But that's not part of um, of your work here at the University of Zurich? No, right? that's, that's not. A project yeah. of yours? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, uh, 
it is part of my work in the sense uh, it is also what I am getting funded for writing my manuscript and working on this research. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is not part of the new project. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so far, do you feel like you've um, you've struggled with gaining access and whatnot in Zurich in regards of how feminism is different or maybe the language as well? Uh, uh, language worked? is a big issue. Mm -hmm. uh, as I said, I'm at a very early stage, but yes, language is a huge issue, especially, um, so I usually tell it to my students, like, uh, before everything else, before developing a research question, you need prior knowledge, you need to know your terrain, and knowing that terrain comes with problem when language is an issue, because most of the things and literature about the feminist movement, especially the feminist strike, is in German, which I am not good at, or like, which I have absolutely zero knowledge of. Um, so that's been sort of a struggle. Mm -hmm. uh, I do believe that even interviewing will be a bit of struggle and I will need some translators or maybe... I believe that that would be an issue, a hurdle I will face. Mm -hmm. But I also think that um, Zurich as a city is pretty international. Yeah. And a lot of people are um, can converse more or less in English. Mm -hmm. So it's just, I think um, I will go to the field, get it talk to people a bit more and then we'll know more on this yeah but right now these are the problems language is a big issue i am ex um, expecting mm -hmm. also like um entry point is also another difficulty i'm expecting because i am clearly an outsider and how comfortable would um, feminists here be uh, about letting me in their spaces i do not know right now people have been very welcoming mm -hmm. um right now uh, till now my experience has been good about it but i do not know yeah. Um, the, how the largest space will and how different groups within the feminist movement will respond mm -hmm. right like it's not a monolith mm -hmm. it's not this is just one feminist movement and everyone follows the same ideology or the same practices of protest or share the same beliefs it's absolutely not true anywhere in the world uh, so I do not know how different groups will respond to me mm -hmm. I also want to interview antagonists and I absolutely do not know how they will respond to yeah. me yeah so I think it's just right now all in the air and mm -hmm. hopefully it all goes well. Mm -hmm. And how long do you uh, think the process is going to take? What is your like frame for the entire project? Um, it should take about two years. Mm -hmm. um, I have applied for an extra funding, um, which we do not know the status of. But a project like that, this will t if I need to do an in-depth study, mm -hmm. will take two years because you interview people uh, you have the first level of analysis and then you go back for the second round of interviews and it's not just interviewing right i will also as i said uh, do visual mapping with them participant observations mm -hmm. um, access the archives and when you say it it sounds oh it's very quick but once you start unearthing things and once you start the analysis uh, the process process sort of takes longer and longer mm -hmm. uh, so i would assume having a complete analysis and a written document about it would take about one and a half to two years. Okay, yeah. Interesting. Um, all right, well, there was a lot of information. Very interesting. I have so many questions in my head. Yeah, um, I bombarded you with information. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned that you did activism too then back, yes. back in India. What, like, what sort of um, groups were you involved with? What did your activism look like? Um, I would call myself an... I wouldn't call myself an activist, or I don't know, it's again a question I struggled with even in my PhD, right? Who was an activist, people who just call themselves activists, or people who are affiliated to particular political groups are the activists, uh, people who have prior experience or like um, come from political families are the activists. Mm. Right now I just go with the fact anyone who calls themselves an activist is an activist, that's the broad definition we're gonna stick by for <laughs> the sake of the uh, <laughs> podcast at least. So I would say I am somewhat of a feminist activist. Um, one of my first protests was in, I think, 2008, uh, which was the Delhi Queer Pride. Mm -hmm. And um, I just went for it. I do not even know at this moment why I went there. I think uh, it was the first year or the early years of when homosexuality was first decriminalized uh, in India, although the decision was later rolled back. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it was like an early day of celebration, um, an early year of celebration about it. And I just went there and it was absolutely exhilarating. Um, 
even though I as I said I watched it from the margins I didn't I was 18 I didn't know anything about anything but just being a part of this huge group who came together for the rights of others or their own rights it was absolutely affirming and um it inculcated a sort of hope in me and i think from then on um i started reading extensively about feminism i think that was also the turning point when i started calling myself a feminist um mm-hmm. because i started reading so much about it um so th- that was my first protest and it's a protest that i've regularly annually gone every year since then um unless and until i'm away from the city or i'm sick or something mm-hmm. it's not a protest i've missed uh, i've not been involved with the organization of it in fact i haven't been involved in the organization of any protest mm-hmm. um and by organization i mean like deciding the time place or what happens mm-hmm. i've gone to protest i've sloganeered i've left slogans but that's about it so i haven't been a part of an organizational team at all so i've been sort of a participant mm-hmm. um then i've also been part of uh so my university for the longest time um was a liberal university and um it was an active site of student politics um so i have been part of a lot of student i'm not part of like again participated um mm-hmm. in a very auxiliary manner in a lot of student protest mm-hmm. um and that's also been great because that's what when we look at protest or when we talk about protest we talk about the seriousness of it but it's also a place where communities are formed where friendships are built um where you return back home with bruises but you return back home also with hope of change mm-hmm. that you believe that enough people actually care about an issue um because when we sit in our homes it feels like a silo of depression and disappointment with the world mm-hmm. and when you go out and you're a part of this huge group like a group of 100 feels big but like sometimes there are thousands and thousands of people who walking alongside you mm-hmm. and it makes a difference that even one of them cares mm-hmm. so it it's i think more about that feeling that hope and like not letting yourself being bogged down by the oppressions that you face yeah so student movements was another and then as a part of my research um i observed a lot of feminist movements as well mm-hmm. observed slash participated again in an auxiliary manner yeah yeah but how much that participation means to any of these protests i do not know mm-hmm. but i think each person can make a difference yeah for sure but mm-hmm. yeah it was in a very auxiliary manner in a like yeah mm-hmm. interesting It'd be interesting to know um how you perceive the differences then from the feminist strike now coming up in june if you like strike with here in Zoom, in june as well i mean i would mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah i mean it, it that's that's exactly what i'm interested in knowing mm-hmm. that um how does a group how does a feminist group function in a space like this uh because back home like back in delhi um you had to take police permissions uh but a lot of protests were not met kindly by the police mm-hmm. uh water cannoning uh, water ca- uh, water cannons mm-hmm. but on charging are something very very common yeah especially now because of the kind of political situation the country is in mm-hmm. um it's something student movements and almost all movements all liberal democratic movements within the country have faced mm-hmm. um so it would be very interesting to know how the feminist strike here works mm-hmm. uh from some of the interviews i've had here or some people i've talked to here the police is more or less friendly to the feminist strike although yeah i'm not sure like yeah um mm-hmm. what is the nature of the relationship between the movement and the participants and again different groups within the movement mm-hmm. uh to the police but it'd be really interesting to see yeah mm-hmm. i'm fascinated by uh the use of the colors uh especially the color purple purple yeah mm-hmm. of why that is um as of now from my interviews i do not know why that's used i know yeah. it has a history mm-hmm. but how far back that history goes and yeah what it means yeah i don't know what it knows but uh, it means mm-hmm. but it'd be interesting to find out mm-hmm. and how the visual representations itself have transformed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it would be interesting to see. Super interesting. Um yeah, maybe at, at that point I can like disclose I've also been part of the feminist strike. I did the demonstration leading last. Oh, that's last amazing. year, yeah. yeah. I was part of the organization committee. So oh, like really cool. Yeah, the, the experiences I've made, um I think people will be very open to talk about 
like the for example the police and their relationship to the police with you like I think mm-hmm. it's a it's an it's an omnipresent topic pretty much at the feminist strike like um, yeah it, it's always around yeah, it's also a negotiation mm-hmm. right because we know from around the world police are no friends of usually liberal movements mm-hmm. um, and how do you sort of negotiate that um, relationship with a straight structure with because a police is an appendage of the state mm-hmm. and um, even from what I understand even the feminist strike is striking against um, the state mm-hmm. it is striking against not entire not entirely against the state but like a lot of its policies are a part yeah. of that critique right yeah so how do you make peace with the fact that you're critiquing the state but an appendage of the state is also acting as your protector mm. and I do not again it's something for me to know about um, read about more how gender equitable and how much gender parity exists in the police force within the country mm-hmm. so but because if it doesn't then how do you make peace with a largely masculinist mm-hmm. so very gendered state appendage yeah um, in a feminist strike or in a woman strike where men are more or less told to sort of take a step back exactly yeah mm-hmm. and how, visually how does it look like what does it does it shift the ratio of men to women mm-hmm. like again i'm talking in a very cis bodied yeah of course manner but mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. just to keep this conversation short and simple yeah. how does that ratio visually look like yeah uh, to have person assigned gender female at birth with a v person assigned gender male at birth mm-hmm. what does that ratio visually look like well it's going to be really interesting to talk about even in after the strike in june then yes <laughs> Um yeah so you explained a bit how you came to your research fields um that that like grew with your activism right um so maybe along those lines do you feel like you've received enough um support by both your home university or your university in in Delhi but also here um to sort of get used to the academic um fields to working did did you get support you mentioned your grant but did you also get something at home at something similar or how does that how did that work um back home i also had a grant to complete my uh, phd it was mm-hmm. again um a grant from outside the university it was actually a government grant mm-hmm. um it was again like very meager but it was much more than um people who not like it was more than what others get mm-hmm. so i mean i'm thankful for that but doesn't mean i don't have critiques of yeah. it uh, doesn't mean it was enough yeah um and that's a critique of how social sciences and humanities are generally treated mm-hmm. we are an underfunded discipline because it is assumed that we do not crunch out numbers our studies do not matter and the tangible effects of our work show up much later because the tangible effect of our work will require a lot of other community work Mm-hmm. and it's gradual and it's not something that you can map simply by numbers mm-hmm. um so but but a lot of people take this work into policy level yes but yeah i mean we are in underfunded discipline yeah. so um i wouldn't say it was great support but it was better than others mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how do you manage with um, i mean everyone knows that academia is stressy that it like demands a lot from everyone a lot of um unpaid labor as well mm-hmm. how do you manage um uh care work and maybe you can explain whether you you have to care for someone if you have children or elderly people you have to care for um or obviously care for yourself and mental health what was your experience um i would say during my doctoral work i was immensely privileged mm-hmm. um i lived with my parents back home um and i think they cared for me much more than i cared for them um a lot of people in india and around the world are not that privileged it takes a huge toll it's almost impossible and just people are doing it still writing their phd's waking up every day um taking care of children and washing their clothes doing their laundry i'm um, doing their laundry washing their dishes um and a million other things that an adult requires to do but what we don't recognize is Mm. the strain a phd takes on you because a it's underfunded b it's a lot of intellectual labor so 
see it's very depressing precisely because you're sitting in front of a laptop sometimes for an entire day not being able to write anything deeds unpaid again like a lot of it underpaid like so you're, you're thinking what's the purpose of this then it's the academic existentialism like what's the point of this mm-hmm. uh, because the institution of course doesn't tell you what's the point of this it's for you to discover on their own uh, on your own what's the point of it and it's the loneliness of it mm-hmm. um, especially as social sciences and humanities PhDs you are in your room working alone mm-hmm. working on your very very specific topic being on your field all alone for months in often adverse conditions and then you come back to it and you're all alone again mm-hmm. of course there are writing circles um, I know of writing circles within the department there are writing circles back home as well but they do enough but how much um, is because again they're not always institutionally supportive so students create it all on their own uh, so how much they help I do not know of course there are bit better than being absolutely isolated but it is an it, it is such a lonely job and how do you make peace with that um, is difficult um, currently in Zurich again very privileged to not have any care work mm. I just care for myself mm. but it was difficult M- moving to a new city moving to a new country um, it was a bit of a culture shock in the way that um, what all I needed to do on my own the weather was a shock. Um, my bo- it took a toll on my body, mm-hmm. but the department has been so supportive. Um, especially my chair has been absolutely grand, mm-hmm. um, and that's what I said. I think I was just lucky in finding the right people here who sort of um, made me feel included very soon and accepted me with all their hearts and were absolutely kind. Um, but I don't think everyone's that lucky. Mm-hmm and everyone gets that break and it just it's absolutely devastating yeah and if there are people who are listening to this and who are planning to do their PhD it's so necessary to have support structures um, you will not survive this without a support structure um, almost every PhD I know has at some point needed a therapy session or like me has needed a therapist mm-hmm. um, again like especially if you're researching um, if you're researching intense topics I mean that's how lightly I mean that's the word I can think of it right now mm-hmm. if you're studying violence if you're studying marginalized communities if you're studying the vulnerable which most of us are it takes a toll on you it's very difficult uh, to keep the objective a quote unquote objective researcher identity for very long because you get invested in it, you're giving four years of your life to this. How do you build that distance? It's impossible. It's it's a lie if somebody tells you that. You will not be doing that. Mm-hmm. And so the research takes a toll on you as well. Yeah. So find your support structures, uh, build those tr- support structures, build those communities. Um, you're not against each other as peers. I mean, that's one thing that, that's I think the biggest thing that I've always tried to tell other people. Academia makes us feel there's not enough space for us, that we're fighting for the same positions, but we're not. If you work with each other, you can create more positions. You will build each other up. Um, you shouldn't be reviewer too. You shouldn't pull each other down. It's, it's the absolute worst. It's the absolute worst for those who are coming from the margins. It's, uh, it's purporting a creme de la creme system. You know how we say the rich get richer? That's what happens here as well, mm-hmm. if you keep bringing each other down. Yeah. And you will not be able to get through it without it. Like, you will not be able to get through without a community. You need it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great um, tip to give on the way, uh, for sure, to, to everyone that's interested uh, in doing a PhD and pursuing an academic career. Um, so, thank you. I think what interests me now a bit is like, we've talked a bit about um, anthropology's. Advantages, so to say, or the what anthropology has to gain mm-hmm. in a society and politics, but um, yeah, maybe you can say a bit more about what you think is the responsibility. What is our responsibility as um, as young anthropologists, um, not just in in regards of social movements, like you mentioned before, but where do you see other like elements of what anthropology can do? Um. 
again like i often think of i like to think of often not giving to others but also like what you can take yourself because it's just easier like because it's not a charity right that you're doing for someone else your research cannot be that um it's also a critique that a lot of anthropologists have written about that when you're researching the vulnerable you're not researching for them i think anthropology is first and foremost for me has been a way to discover more about my world um i think i wrote it somewhere that it brings some peace to my chaos it sort of makes me help make sense of my world i think it's that like realize who you're doing anthropology for but um what anthropologists can do is also um be responsible like create a sense of responsibility um between um within the society they're working in right because um accountability is a huge thing within the field that is why we talk about researchers positionality we talk about the ethics of research um not all of us have the ethics board but we talk about it that do you pay your researchers what is the time you take um how do you value the unpaid labor of the researched what is the right term for it is it interlocutors it is is it co-participants is it the researched is it the subject there are intense discussion about it because somewhere along the line we have understood that an anthropologist is responsible for creating accountability between the society and the academic mm-hmm. and the academy as the as an institution because what we do is like if we go back to the traditional anthropology which again has been hugely racist but it was studying the other culture right and now let's be more politically correct it's about studying cultures and by studying cultures we understand how diverse ways of thinking are and how we are still connected so it's about understanding the value of it and maintaining um a level of accountability and ethics to it I think that's one of the huge contribution anthropology makes it continuously makes you think what it's like to cross boundaries into another culture and respecting it mm-hmm. and then coming back to it and and coming back to your own culture and still writing about it responsibly mm-hmm. oh, you know because yeah you're responsible to yourself you're responsible to the anthrop- to anthropology as a field in reporting or like writing as honestly but you're also responsible to the community you're researching mm-hmm. and what you can contribute to them so i think it also fosters that yeah. in a society mm-hmm. yeah no that's very interesting i f- i feel like the the peers i talk to that don't do anthropology that's um that's not reflections i hear a lot like because because um many other fields solely break everything down to numbers right mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. exactly this dynamic is being forgotten a bit yeah yeah because it when we go to the field i mean we need in the books be the objective researcher maintain the distance and whenever you go to the field you realize those boundaries are so blurry and you're continuously in this liminal space of being objective and then you read about how no science is objective mm-hmm. and you realize that it's been an absolute farce mm-hmm. and these are struggles of an anthropologist to the discomfort is a struggle of an anthropologist it's not a struggle that a lot of fields face um the discomfort of being in the field of being an outsider but becoming an insider then and then writing about it like an outsider again mm-hmm. you know you're continuously hopping spaces you're continuously shifting responsibilities or not even shifting responsibilities you're finding a balance in responsibilities right so you're also drawing boundaries like okay this is too much for me or this is how much i can be part of the community mm-hmm. as an anthropologist as a, as a researcher or what am i even entering the research research space as am i entering as a community person am i entering as primarily an external researcher like what these are questions that not many fields ask before going to the field Mm-hmm. these are questions that master students start asking even before they have gone to the field mm-hmm. so and if you're a phd then the, these are questions that you're continuously struggling with for about 6 years 
So imagine spending that much time on just living with the discomfort and living with the questions of accountabilities and research ethics. I think that's what makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now circling back to your current fieldwork, maybe what are the questions or how did you answer the quest- these questions for yourself when you um, started um, fieldwork here? Um, as I said, I haven't really begun fieldwork here, but mm-hmm. I can talk about it in my doctoral research. Mm-hmm. Again, since I was coming from a public institution and I did not have much money, um, the question of paying people money for the labor for their interview labor was not something that I could positively assure them. It's, they, it was never even asked. In fact, I think they would have just absolutely refused. Um, but it was a huge question for me because, especially because I was also studying active movements during the time. And that means interviewing participants meant I was taking time away from them, uh, from their politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that was one of the ethical questions. Like, how do you take, how, how are you okay with that? And you supplement with that. Uh, I supplemented it at least with the fact that I would only take a certain amount of time, not too much. I would talk to them about how much they were comfortable with giving, but I would also like go to these protests with them. Mm-hmm. So if I was taking away time from them, I was also contributing in some way. Not enough probably, but some ways. Trying to, yeah. Trying to, mm-hmm. ma- making mm-hmm. an attempt. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other question was also how to write about them. Because um, what we do is we take interviews or we take case studies and then we apply these obscure theories to them that our participants do not know about. Mm-hmm. And how do you, then what, what is it that you're giving back? So one of the things that I also did with them was ask them how they want to be written about. And the idea is that the research is not about so much so as analytical answers, but about presenting their stories. And what the analysis then primarily is, is my perspective of how I've read them. It's not necessarily how they've read them. Mm-hmm. So draw, drawing that differences, I think those were two very big questions for me because um, also we know misinformation and misrepresentations are very big things when it comes to liberal social movements in authoritarian regimes. And when that is already happening, you don't want to be another person doing that. Even if it's you writing positively, you do not want any misrepresentation which can later be used by the authorities to sort of... Against. Uh, yeah. uh, against the movement. Mm-hmm. So you do not want that to happen. So that responsibility is huge when you're writing of active social movements in fascist authoritarian regimes. Uh, so that was a big question I struggled with. Um, and it's a question I think I still think about how to write responsibility how much and how many interviews are enough to give like a broad picture. Um, it's something that you discover in the field, I would say. It's not something... That someone can tell you. That someone can tell you. Mm-hmm. Because it really depends on the context and the geographical spaces, uh, the places that you're coming from. For instance, if you're coming from a privileged university, I do believe people should pay people for their time. Yeah. But then there are other debates around it like, then it makes it difficult for those from the non-privileged universities to study because now the participants are used to being paid. Mm-hmm. And stuff like that, yada, yada, yada. Um, huge debates that people can read about on their own. We don't need to talk about it. But yeah, uh, it's very individual how you approach the question of ethics. Um, how um, You will not do well on all accounts. You will fail on your own moral standards that you've set up for yourself in research. And that's fine. Um, we are bounded by the field mm-hmm. uh, and we're trying to change it as much as we can so you'd break some bounds and you'd do something new and you'd conform a bit don't be harsh on yourself but yeah that's what you do mm-hmm. it's a nice um, nice end <laughs> don't be too harsh on yourself yes don't be too harsh on yourself yeah. um, uh, I'd ask you if you have anything else to share for our um, our listeners some uh I don't know, tips or an anecdote, something that you wish someone would have told you as uh, when you started your academic career? Um, a lot of things <laughs> I wish people had told me. Uh, firstly, that don't do a PhD if you do not, are ab- if you're not absolutely excited by what you're doing uh, because you will give four years to your life to it. Um, second, the life after a PhD is very precarious. Um, 
so it's not worth it if you're not if you do not want to be in academia mm-hmm. um it's very precarious your mental health will suffer have a therapist on the call ready, ready um take care of your body because um when you're 25 you can stay up till 4 but when you're 30 you cannot mm-hmm. <laughs> um and your body will change through the phd um so those are sacrifices that you make but also you don't need to so like be really kind to your bodies um write every day mm-hmm. doesn't matter what you write write every day and every day it will improve you will you will not realize that perhaps now write every day as anthropologists keep extensive field notes um they will be your life um yeah and don't let people tell you that you suck or <laughs> don't let people bog you down don't let them tell you to use other methods right <laughs> yeah <laughs> do what you want it's um yeah a phd is first and foremost your work mm-hmm. don't let other people control you yeah. you have i mean you feel like it's institutionally bounded or there's a right and wrong way to do it but no your way is the right way experiment 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 it will bring you so much joy mm-hmm. how nice that's uh, i think that's great tips on the way it's um, interesting you're not the first one who um, whose first impulse was to say only do a phd if you're very passionate about it <laughs> yeah Um cool well thank you very much for answering all my noisy questions um no, 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 it's a pleasure <laughs> um to end on a lighter note maybe you have something non anthropological a recommendation for a book or a movie or something you've recently watched or read that like sort of um gave you new impulses or broadened your horizons or was simply just interesting. Uh, a movie that I recently watched I can recommend and in fact to all anthropologists I can recommend it. Uh it's called Banshees of Inisherin. Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting take on small communities and loss. I mean in my perspective no spoilers. Mm-hmm. Um but it's on cinemas right now mm-hmm. and I'm not paid by them but yeah check it out. <laughs> um one of my favorite books which is absolutely sad is and i recommend it to everyone i think i practically need it <laughs> it's called never let me go mm-hmm. um yeah okay those are the two things <laughs> perfect thank you so much thank you so much for having me it was an absolute pleasure and i hope people find the research interesting and people take something positive from this for sure thank you you're welcome